Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today's guest is Eduardo Perez. Eduardo, a former major leaguer, pretty good hitter in his day, and uh, has been doing broadcasting in one form or another with ESPN uh, since 2006. Baseball Tonight, College World Series, MLB games, all kinds of stuff, and a former colleague of mine and a friend of mine, and what a joy it is to uh, catch up with him. One of my first times on campus in Bristol, he said, uh, come, I'm taking you out to dinner. And there's like nowhere to eat near Bristol. And he took me for Mongolian barbecue, which I mentioned to him on the podcast. And I'm forever grateful to that for that because then I had new, I had a place to eat in the future and, uh, and an ally on staff. It could be intimidating with like big league ball players and stuff. And you're some hoser from Canada. So it was really cool. He's a very nice fellow, really smart baseball man. And uh, this was a great conversation, everything from uh, the aftermath of Hurricane Maria to, heck, I mean, he was the, he's the son of Tony Perez. So growing up in that Reds clubhouse in like the mid-70s when Ken Griffey Jr. was six and so was he and Pete Rose Jr. And it, an amazing uh, collection of people in that tunnel. And he tells great stories about that, too. I think you really dig this podcast. It's a lot of fun. Let us discuss this week's sponsor, friends, and that is our old friends at SeatGeek. Yes, you know SeatGeek. It's the best place to buy or sell tickets to anything you could possibly imagine, sporting events, concerts, what have you. I have used SeatGeek for concerts, and I have used SeatGeek for baseball and hockey and lots of other events, and they are great. Color-coded map shows you where the best deal in the ballpark ballpark and or arena might be. Color-coded, really easy to use, and fantastic. I am a big, big fan of SeatGeek. I'm also a big fan of deals. And how about this? If you download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code Jonah today, you'll get $20 off of your first purchase. That's right. Just download the SeatGeek app, enter the promo code Jonah. And once you have completed your first purchase, you'll get $20 off instantly just by entering the promo code Jonah, J-O-N-A-H. Also, even if you use SeatGeek before, how about this? If you're an MLB fan, you want to go to an MLB game, you can get 10 bucks off of MLB tickets. You use the promo code CARRY, K-E-R-I. That's promo code CARRY. For $10 off of MLB tickets, or just go ahead and use the promo code Jonah for $20 off of any first-time purchase. That's all you got to do to enjoy the best discounted rates to any ballgame you could possibly imagine. Thank you to SeatGeek for sponsoring the podcast. Some quick programming notes, CBS Sports. Uh, go to cbssports.com, and at the bottom of the page, you'll find CBS Sports HQ, and you can watch live at any time. I do a trillion billion hits a day for them, talking baseball in all forms. You can also check it out on the CBS Sports app through your Apple TV or Roku or anything like that. It's great. Um, and if you're into basketball or football, hockey, what have you, there is analysis and news all day, all night. You can check all of that out. And I'm, like I said, doing a lot of heavy lifting and baseball side. Some writing as well for CBSSports.com and also Sportsnet.ca. You could check out my uh, thoughts on the Blue Jays and some other ball clubs. And also, if you are in Canada, check me out on Sportsnet TV every single week. And hey, you know what? Father's Day is this weekend. And you know what you should get if you are trying to get a Father's Day gift? Of course, you should get one of uh, the books that I've written. Check out The Extra 2% if you'd like. That's about the Tampa Bay Rays. Sort of moneyballish. if you've never read that. That's fun. And also, uh, my pride and joy, Up, Up, and Away, a book about the late, great Montreal Expos, the entire history of the franchise, interviews with everybody you can possibly imagine. Uh, it's 2-3% memoir, a little bit of that in there. And a lot of fun. I think you'll dig that book too. So uh, check those out. 
If you can find an indie bookstore, buy them there. Otherwise, take, check them out online. And uh, that's all you got to do. So, uh, yeah, for Father's Day. That'll be fun. And also fun is this edition of the Jonah Carey Podcast. It is with Eduardo Perez. Enjoy. All right, so it's a pleasure to welcome in a friend, former colleague at ESPN. It's Eduardo Perez. Eddie, how are you? What's going on, Jonah? It is a pleasure to talk to you. You're one of my favorite people in the industry, thoughtful. Uh, you once took me to Mongolian barbecue when I had no idea what to eat in Greater Bristol, so I appreciate that. I think probably the one decent restaurant <laughs> within reach of, uh, of ESPN yeah. campus, so I'll be eternally grateful for that. Um, well, I appreciate it, but if, but if Mongolian barbecue gets us together, then uh, then I'm even more appreciative of the Mongolian barbecue. Then. <laughs> oh, you're kind. You're too kind. Um, so, lots of stuff to talk about. I think what I want to do first, because uh, I like to go back with people. I had Doug Lanville on recently, so we'll go about the same tack. And it's a little bit of a different um, origin story for Doug than it is for you. Doug did not have uh, family ties necessarily in the game. He sort of chose to play baseball on his own and all that. What is it like when you're a kid and your dad is a future Hall of Famer? Is it just, well, you're definitely going to be a baseball player? Or could you have been an orthodontist just as easily? Where Did you feel a push, either conscious or unconscious, to pursue this as a career? No, really, I didn't. Um, that's the crazy part about it. As successful as my dad was and still has an impact in the game, um, he never forced my older brother, Victor, or myself to play the game. So he, all he wanted us to do was do the things that he could not have done when he was younger and why he worked so hard at this craft of baseball. And it was to give us an education, to be able to, uh, for us to, to give us the, um, you could say, the tools of being able to speak both languages, both Spanish and English, yeah. fluently. Um, so we won't, uh, have any hurdles that he did when he spoke the language, uh, when he had to learn the language of English, which still as to this day has given him some, some trouble, but he's always confronted it. Uh, but he's, he, he was always great. He, I played more basketball than I did baseball. Huh. Um, I played baseball during the summer at the ballpark when I would go and hang out with my brother and all the kids at Riverfront Stadium. We'd grab a bat and a ball. We'd uh, just be kids, but. He he never forced it upon us. It was never expected that my brother or I would uh, would uh, take um, take the reins and be uh, if it's the next Tony Perez uh, or not. And uh, the most important thing for him and my mom was uh, that they made sure that we got an education out of all of this. When did you first start to realize that you might be really good? You know that aside from genes, that aside from you're a big guy, certainly. That, oh, okay, it's not just that I'm playing on the high school team or what have you. It's, it's that, no, I actually could make a career of this. 
my junior year in college okay. at Florida State. Um, as crazy as it sounds, it's you, you got to understand. I never, I never did any travel team like all the kids do, where huh. where they go on the, these travel league teams and they play all summer and they play a total of 30, 40, 50. I don't even know what that is. That's very foreign to me. Um, what what I used to do is during the summers I used to go where my parents were. My mom would always be with my dad. I would be with uh, at the time my grandfather, rest in peace, or my great aunt in um, in Puerto Rico until school ended. I played a lot of basketball, as I said. I played a lot of tennis. And um, the curious thing was, and the way I started playing baseball uh, consistently was actually in Puerto Rico. Before I get to the, to that final, the, the the answer is my junior year in college, but how did I get there right. is actually pretty interesting because one day there was a there was a, there, there was an issue with the basketball court um, at, at our school and we had our practice was canceled and I was bored and I said, I'm going to go to the batting cages. This was my, I want to say at the beginning of my senior year mm-hmm. and I went to the batting cages and I'm hitting the baseballs. I'm putting the tokens into the, the cage <laughs> And this kid comes up to me and says, uh, so what team do you play for? And I said, I don't play for a team. And he goes, come on, with that swing, you don't play on a team? I said, wow. no, I just do this for fun. And um, the kid's name was just Vala Cervillo, like I remember to this day. <laughs> and he told me, he goes, well, why don't you play for our team? And I said, when do you play? It's important to know when, when did you play because I really love basketball. Right. And he said, no, I, I play, we practice on Thursdays, we play on Saturdays. And I said, I can do that. That doesn't interrupt at all with my basketball. So they practice on Thursday nights at 7 o'clock. And, and from there, the game's on Saturdays. And I could do that. Something fun to do on the weekends. Something to get me out um, from being at the house all day. And and I went, went to the practice. No problem. Um, I started playing the games. And I did really well. And I was like, wow, you know, these kids play all the time. And I'm hanging out. But then again, it's second nature to me because I do this during the summer a lot. Uh, wherever my dad was, it was in Cincinnati or wherever he was at the time. And, and, um, so there I get seen by another team where the famous Luis Rosas, which was, uh, the same guy that signed, uh, his first time he was Ozzy Guillen from Venezuela. But after that, hmm. you name any Puerto Rican that played in San Diego from the Alamars to the Bayergas, uh, to the Ray Sanchez's, then you go to Texas and, and you get, a. um, and then he went to Texas, and that's where he signed Ruben Sierra, Juan Gonzalez. Uh, you keep going down the list. And then he went to San Francisco after that. But he, he had a team, and he called me, and he said, I want you to play for our team. And he goes, if you play for our team, most likely I'll try to uh, I'll get you to sign. Hmm. And I said, I just need to go to college. <laughs> if you can get me to go to college, um, and my parents don't have to pay for it or don't have to pay for the full part of it because I saw what the sacrifice that they always had to do with my brother, Yeah. Um, then I'm in. And he said, yeah, come play for me. And I went over, uh, went to the went to the games. Uh, my teammate was Yvonne Rodriguez, Ted Rodriguez was wow. the catcher. Um, he was younger than I was. And I, they put me to play third base, and he threw a ball to third base and almost broke my thumb. And I said, I'm going back <laughs> to the outfield, guys. <laughs> so I went back to the outfield, and all of a sudden I get a call from Florida State University out of the blue, and it was because of the recommendation that Luis Rosas had, had given um, had given Rod Delmonico from Florida State, and because of that recommendation, um, Rod Delmonico trusted Luis Rosas' um, uh, instincts, his, 
his eyes, and he understood what pedigree was about. And this is what Rod Delmonico told me, and and um, he invited me to come up to Florida State. I didn't know where Florida State was in Florida. I yes. had no idea it was in Tallahassee. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know where that was. There was no Google at the time, Jonah. Uh-huh. It was crazy. And um, I go from San Juan to Atlanta, Atlanta to Tallahassee. Guy Gallagher, which is now the clubhouse man for many years for the Tampa Bay Rays visiting side, was waiting for me out, out right there leaving the tarmac when I was leaving the tarmac. And, yes. and, and he looked at me up and down, and he goes, huh, okay, follow me. And I guess he looked at me because I was a hundred at that time, probably 155 pounds soaking wet. Oh my God. I was six three. I cannot picture oh, yeah. that. I, I, I yeah. Well, I played a lot of basketball. I was dead. Yeah. And a hundred and, 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 uh, he looked at me and he goes, Oh, we got a lot of work to do. <laughs> and, um, and I saw the campus. It was the only school that ever recruited me to play baseball. Wow. I had a lot of small college offers to play basketball, but, uh, to play baseball, it was, it was the only school. And, I was like, listen, if you guys are going to help me pay for my education and I can take a little bit of the burden away from my parents, I'm in. And um, they, I fell in love with Florida State. Uh, those first two years going into my junior year, I wasn't even a top 100 prospect in college. And all of a sudden, I grew into my body. Yeah. And um, I ended up my junior year at 215 pounds. And, and I was a different player, a lot more confident. And the next thing you know, I go 17th pick in the country, first round pick, 17th pick to the California Angels. And but midway through that junior year is when I was like, "Wow, this is I can do something with this sport." Hmm. I love. By the way, just as a segue, you have a little bit of a, a Zelig aspect to you because of the playing with Pudge early on, and of course in those Reds clubhouses. I don't even know if you'd remember this if you were old enough. But, oh, yeah. you know, running around with, I assume, Junior Griffey was there because you guys were exactly the same age and all the kids. Were there other kids? Was it just like a cornucopia of, like, six-year-olds running around the big red machine clubhouse at that time? Because that had to be the most fun thing ever. Absolutely. It really was. Uh, I, you know what? I go back to that time that it was Riverfront Stadium before they changed the name to Synergy Field. Yeah. I'll still call it Riverfront Stadium. And um, even though it's torn down now, that was our home away from home during the summers. And we could not wait, all of us. We knew what was important back then as a six-year-old. And the things that were important to us is make sure mom gets to the ballpark early, because at that time we still couldn't go with dad. Yes. Sometimes we could. And we would go, try to steal gum from Bernie Stowe's, uh, from all the gum that he had stored away in the store. <laughs> we'd have, we'd have, uh, Ken Griffey Jr., we'd have Pete Rose Jr., oh, wow. we had my old, my older brother Victor, we had Craig Griffey, we had, um, um, there, there were some kids that would come in one year, they'd be there one year, they wouldn't be there another year, I mean, you name it, we had the McRae was there for a while. Oh, wow. Um, he was a little bit older, uh-huh. and he got, and then, then he moved on to Kansas City, um, Oh, you, you can keep going on and on with, with names. And, and, and the beautiful part about it is we played our, our games. We played them in the tunnels of Riverfront Stadium. And the tunnels were a lot wider. You could, you could have cars go through the tunnel. But now it's a lot narrower <laughs> yeah. in new stadiums. So we already knew if you hit the wall, a certain wall was a double. If you hit the railing, Amazing. it would have it been, been an out. It, it, we had all these rules at Riverfront Stadium. And we played all the way to the first pitch of the game. And then at the first pitch, 
we were mandated by Sparky Anderson that we had to sit and watch the game. And if we saw one of the umpires did anything wrong behind the plate, we had to yell at him, umpire, you need glasses. <laughs> and, um, and that so was cute. that was our thing. And we, uh, we looked forward to it day in and day out. And we had to cheer on the Reds. And if we did not, it, it was like we held each other accountable. Mm-hmm. It was unbelievable. Uh, I remember Sparky Anderson called us all into the room, uh, into his office one time, and he had a meeting with the kids. And he goes, boys, this is what's going on. <laughs> if, if the Reds win, if the Reds win, um, you're allowed in the clubhouse before the media can come in. All right. If the Reds lose, you're not allowed in the clubhouse. Uh, we were fortunate. In the 70s, the Reds didn't lose. They didn't lose. Much. So we were... <laughs> We were in the clubhouse a lot, <laughs> and, I think, and, and that's what, uh, and, and that's what, um, that's what really was so cool. Because deep down inside, we we were forced to watch the games when we were young, so we knew the game. Uh, our instincts were great. We could see things before they even happened, um, just by learning it, by watching it, by studying it, and then we understood the value of winning, of what it took to move the runner over. Uh, we uh, at, at the age of five, at the age of six, I knew if there was a runner at second, you have to do everything in your power, not to just hit a ground ball the other way, but to trade places with that guy at second base, hitting the ball with authority the other way. I mean, and if it wasn't done, we'd be like, why wasn't it done? Hmm. And, 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 and each one of those Reds players, they held each other accountable. So we as, as kids, we emulated what our parents did, what our fathers did. Hmm. We wanted, and we held each other accountable also on our little, um, I don't want to say it was a, a little you know, backyard, but it, it was our tunnel. Our tunnel was where we made our lick when we were kids at the age of five, six, seven years of age. That's fantastic. I want to jump ahead to the minor leagues here, and this is kind of a pet project of mine, so I'm curious to get your thoughts. You spent about two years in the minor leagues. 91 is when you started. 93 is when you made your big league debut. And we'll get to the big league debut in a second. But I'm always curious about life in the minors. And in your case, you know, as a first-round pick, you would have had a pretty good-sized signing bonus. Not, it's not as big a deal. But I'm of the belief that minor leaguers need to be compensated differently. The teams view minor league players as an unlimited resource. And so you can pay guys way less than minimum wage and stack them six to a two-bedroom apartment and you know, wherever your Great Falls, Montana, whatever it is, and no problem. And you can argue both sides of it, right? That if so many kids really want to play baseball, okay, it's a supply and demand issue or whatever. But I feel like paying people, I don't care who it is, whether it's a 19-year-old kid or whether it's a 40-year-old person, sub-minimum wage and making them really struggle for it, I'm not sure that it makes this whole idea of toughness and you go through the crucible and this, that, I'm kind of skeptical about this. I think that you can make passable wages and still be tough and still, you know, move ahead and potentially make the big leagues or at least be a good minor league player. Where do you fall on all that? Because it is a contentious issue in baseball. There's a lawsuit potentially pending, and MLB's kind of ignored this. Yeah, it's tough. It really is. It's uh, the, the way that minor leaguers, with how they get compensated. I remember my first check, um, and I'm not talking signing bonus. I remember an A-ball. Yes. Uh, we were we were making seven. I want to say it was seven hundred and fifty dollars a month. Wow! So we're looking at our checks after taxes. Playing in California, 
I want to say we're coming in around $213. Oh my God. Give or take a little bit. <laughs> and you're like, how did it? And I was just thinking, how do my teammates do this? Because yeah. my signing bonus helped me. Yeah. And, 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 and it, it really did. And I was, that, I was that guy because I was the Latin guy that, um, that I felt a responsibility because of the way I was brought up because of what I saw from my father. Uh, taking care of the young rookies and everything. Mm-hmm. I took it upon myself. I remember when we were in uh, spring training where they put us up in a hotel in, in Arizona. At that time, we're not getting paid. During spring training, you don't get paid. Mm. And what they decided to do was they didn't give us meal money either. They said, we'll feed you at the Sheraton. I remember this. Yeah. We'll give you breakfast there. You'll eat a snack at the at the ballpark, at the, at the clubhouse, which at that time consisted of an apple, a banana, and some some uh, Campbell's soup. Okay. I remember this clearly. Uh-huh. And then at dinner, the dinner was at 7 o'clock, and sometimes it was, to, you know, it was, um, you know, those dumplings, chicken and dumplings, and yeah. plates and dishes that none of these Latino kids had ever seen in their lives. Wow. So all of a sudden, they see just, you know, you see some greens and dumplings. Hmm. Or they see, and it's just, there you go. That's what you have. And the next day, let's do it all over again. And they're not receiving any money. And I was baffled because we would end up our practices and our, some, our practices maybe at 3 o'clock. And, and I'm going, they're starving. I'm yeah. starving. Mm-hmm. And they have to wait till 7 o'clock now for dinner. And you have one hour to eat. To me, it just made no sense. So every day, I'm talking every day, yeah. and the people at Burger King knew me well, <laughs> I would go up. And I went there and I said, for, from now on, every day, you're gonna you're gonna have ninety nine you're gonna have ninety nine cent whoppers. I, I bought ninety nine cent whoppers for I want to say the entire spring training for these kids, and it was like fifty whoppers a day. <laughs> and it is what it is. But, yeah. You know, I thought that, and these kids when they when they first I mean, my teammates when they first saw it, and I'm talking about A ball players, double A players, sure. you know, rookie ball players, just taking care of them. And this was only Latinos. This was also, you know, American kids. Uh, whoever whoever needed and wanted food, I felt a responsibility for. Hmm. And and again, it's a, it's a hard living. It's not easy. Um, those checks don't go far. You have to live your right three, four uh, at a time. Yeah. Um, you know, it bonds you. It makes you uh, a better teammate. My teammates were Mike Butcher, which is a pitching coach right sure, now. Sure, I know Mike for um, uh, for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Mm-hmm. This was my Triple A teammates. I had I had uh, uh, Brian Graybeck, um, mm-hmm. uh, Craig Graybeck's younger younger brother, and I had Gary Anderson mm-hmm. as my roommates in Vancouver, and um, and because it was so expensive in Vancouver, even in AAA, you had the room together. Yeah, you couldn't live on you couldn't live on your own. No, so it's um, uh, you know, but you learn and you create unbelievable friendships, bonds from it. But you're right. Um, as far as making a living at the minor league level, at the lower levels, A ball, Double A. It's hard to do. It really is, and uh, maybe something will come about it. But it's you're looking at a five month job. The other seven months, you're going to have to fend for yourself. Yeah, not easy. No question about it. Um, I want to ask you about your big league debut because you know other guys they talk about. Well, you know, I went over four, but at least I made a presence felt or whatever. You raked. You instantly came into the big leagues and demolished uh, the Oakland Athletics. So 
So what? Oh, it was so easy. It's so easy. You were destined for greatness. So tell oh. me, were you nervous? Did you just know that you were going to hammer them that day? Because wow, you just went to town that day. Um, it, it was so easy that it, that it became really difficult afterwards. Oh. <laughs> um, you know, um, I'll, I'll be straight up with you. I yeah. had my brother and I since we were little, and 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 we when we played in those tunnels, when we played in Puerto Rico, anywhere we were, Montreal. Yeah. We lived there also for three years. Hmm. I went to LCC, Lower Canada College. Amazing also. you went to LCC. Um, so did my fiance. Fantastic. How about that? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so it's a small world, you see? Yeah. Beautiful. And and um, we made we made, a, we made a, an agreement. And we always, you know, we played all these creative games, card games and everything. My brother one time said, he goes, he goes, hey, Ed, whoever makes it, uh, whoever, when, when you or I make it to the big leagues, um, we have to, no matter where it is, swing at the first pitch of your first at bat. <laughs> and I'm like, deal. And this is like a pinky promise that we did when we were like five, six years old. Right? Yeah. So all of a sudden, I get called up to the big leagues and um, worked my way from from uh, Scottsdale, where I got called up. Yep. And to uh, we were playing the, the the Scorpions at the time there and the Triple A affiliate for for the San Francisco Giants mm-hmm. and get called up and my brother I, I tell my brother i call my brother and he goes don't forget our promise I go, oh my god <laughs> so there i go up to the plate and i don't feel my toes my heart's beating so fast and i just couldn't believe that i'm standing in this box right here at the big leagues and at the time the the, the big a was enclosed yeah, and I'm going. Wow, it looks so clear. Joe Babers on the mound, and he throws this slider down and away, uh, better, more away than down. But it was like in the other batter's box, and I swung, and boom, and everybody's like, "Ooh!" And I was like, "Okay, promise out of the way." You know, it actually helped me. And then I guess Baber was thinking, "This guy's going to swing at everything. I'm going to throw three more there." Not only did he throw three, threw four more there, and I ended up walking on yes. my first at bat. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, all right, this is pretty cool. I got to walk. My own base percentage is up. Well, <laughs> the second time up, I hit a double uh, down the line in right field. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm like, okay, this is pretty good. And, um, you know, it was awesome. Uh, the, you know, they throw the baseball out. They do the whole joke, the whole thing. Yep. And, um, and then my third time, I want to say my fourth time up in that game, mm-hmm. Kevin Campbell is on the mound. And Kevin Campbell was he had I had faced him earlier on um, earlier on in the year I had faced him in, in, in the minor leagues mm-hmm. and he threw me some curveballs that I could not hit. I was like, wow, this guy's got a good curveball. Mm-hmm. So I sat curveball. Uh, my first big league got uh, uh, my first big league day. I said, I'm going to sit curveball. I'm going to trust my gut here because I know that he got me out on this pitch and he hung a curveball and I hit it um, really well. Mm-hmm. Really, really well, and I knew it was gone, and I sort of flipped the back. And oh! Or the A's dugout. Oh! And the time, Charlie LaRusa was the manager for the Oakland Athletics. Yeah. I round the bases, do the whole thing, come in. I was like, this league is easy, great. <laughs> um, that was my last half bat. It was like a three-run homer, I believe. Yeah, it was. And uh, I was driving to uh, Chili Davis and Tim Salmon. Pretty good. And... All of a sudden, the next day, Ruben Sierra was as calm as he was, as cool as he was. He came up to me. He goes, hey, man, go home, run. I said, I said, thanks, man. He goes, next time, 
don't throw the bat. You only <laughs> got four outs in the deadly. Uh, uh, Tony La Russa wanted to throw one at your ribs, and I told him I'll talk to you. <laughs> so I'm talking to you right now, so you don't throw the bat again. Okay. And I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> uh, so that was that conversation with Ruben Sierra and myself after my first day in the big league. But it was a surreal experience. It was really, really cool. Tim Salmon and Chili Day. That's pretty good. That's uh, two of the better players of that era. That's pretty, pretty fun. So, um, gosh, there's so many things I want to ask about a career. One of the things that I, I'm, I'm interested in is that you had success against Randy Johnson, which is insane. Now, you were a right-handed batter, so at least that's a little bit easier. You can remember, everybody remembers, you know, Croc turning his helmet around and Larry Walker couldn't hit you know, These great left-handed hitters just felt like right. they had no chance. Fastball slider. Yeah, you're righty. But, okay, platoon splits only go so far. This is either the best left-hander of all time or second best, depending on how you feel about lefty Grove. And you hit him. You did pretty well against him. How did that come about? Was it just one of those things? You get up, you know, X number of times you happen to have success, or did you feel like you had his number? Did you feel like you could read the slider? Because that's an incredible feat, you know, incredible for any – I don't care if you're a Hall of Fame hitter. To hit Randy Johnson is something else. Yeah, it, it was uh, four home runs total against Randy. Yeah. Um, I'm going to start I'm gonna start sort of – I'm going to start backwards on this one. And, and, and the reason I say this is because I met up last year with Randy – in Cooperstown, yeah. and we're at the Autosaga Hotel in Cooperstown, and he's there with his son, um, at the, uh, you know, with with his son at the bar, at the uh, restaurant bar, and he sees me and he points at me, and I'm like, uh oh, and, uh, <laughs> and I'm like, uh oh, this isn't good, and um, he, he comes over, this unbelievable person, and he's telling his son, he goes, this guy just absolutely mashed against me, and I'm like, <laughs> okay, I'm in Cooperstown where. All the legends are staying in this hotel, and a legend is saying to his son that this guy mashed. Yeah. A guy that has 79 career home runs um, that you're speaking to right now. Um, well, four of those, thanks to Randy. And and he goes, okay, what you got? And I said, Randy, you, you told me every pitch you were throwing. And he goes, what do you mean? And I said, you tipped every pitch. Oh. So... And, and, and he goes, I'm telling you now because I'm not going to face you ever again. <laughs> and, and so I feel, I feel a responsibility now to let the cat out of the bag. Mm. And, and he, and he goes, what do you mean? And I said, well, you did this on the fastball and you did this on the slider. I said, but let's get something straight. You were still nasty as heck to hit because the ball comes screaming out of your hand. It comes whistling out of your hand. I don't know where it's going to go. It's 99. It's 97. It can be 100. And you're so close to me that I can smell your breath. I know you have tic tacs or not. And the most important thing is, now I have to guess location. Mm. But at least I don't have to guess if it's going to be a slider or a fastball. Right. And, and, um, and he's like, are you kidding me? And I go, yeah. And, and, and so the next day was and, and the next day he and uh, Ryan Sandberg were going to clinic and they were in full uniform hmm. and they were in full uni. It was beautiful. Yeah. And to watch him come into the outside of the hotel and I go, Randy, come over here real quick. And I go, and he has a glove in his hand and he has a ball in his hand. And I go, give me the fastball. And I take a selfie, a picture of a selfie <laughs> with the fastball. And I go, give me the slider. 
And then I show him the picture, and he goes, oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> it's a whole thing. And he goes, just imagine if you wouldn't have kept your picture. <laughs> and I said, you have all the records that there could be. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, you think I'm the only one that knew? I said, that's how nasty you are, that you were telling us, you were telling us what you were throwing, and we still couldn't hit it consistently. Wow. And, 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 and Randy Johnson is one of the unbelievable, unbelievable person, great talent when it comes to photography and everything. But his focus was so much on being able to throw the pitch through the strike zone. Because remember, when he was in Montreal, he struggled with his oh, yeah. location. Couldn't throw strikes. That he had to be mechanically sound because as tall as he is, he had to have everything working with him. He had the back issues also. Mm. So all those things, the last thing he was going to think about was his glove. And, um, I was fortunate, and I needed to know, Jonah. I needed to know because going back to A-ball in, in uh, Palm Springs, I lost my eyesight uh, on my left eye, running the ball into my eye, and I was never the same. Wow. So I really only hit in the big leagues with one eye. So I needed to know what was coming. Crazy. Huh. Um, I want to jump ahead a little bit and talk about uh, post-career. And, uh, I mean, the first time you did – TV stuff. This is back in 06. So you've been at this for a little while. And, uh, it's a fun gig. You know, you get to really learn a different perspective on the game and all that. Did you envision that right away? Cause you pretty much went right from the ball field, more or less, to being on the microphone in one form or another, whether it was in studio for baseball tonight or doing game coverage at college initially and then eventually MLB. Was that your thought all along was, okay, whenever it is that I hang them up, this is what I'm going to do? Because it feels like it's just a perfect fit. Like, not only, you know, your knowledge of the game and the way you call it, but just your ability to build rapport. And, like, I spoke to Eddie Rosario before the game. He said this. You just have this way about you that that lends itself to this gig. So how did this come about? Was it just instant, okay, I'm definitely going to do this, or was it a happenstance sort of thing? It, it sort of happened. I think it, it... I was really intrigued by it at, uh, at some parts, uh, sometimes. Um, I used to think, okay, what am I going to do once I finish playing? Do I want to coach? Do I want to uh, just go into the private uh, uh, business world? Do I want to be an agent? Do I want do I want to do television, radio? And I, in, 2006, in 2006, when I was with the Cleveland Indians, in spring training, the, the SID director, Bart Swain, um, had us re- do a reading for their for um, the stadium for the stadium to be played in, in, in Cleveland. Oh wow! And guys were struggling with the reading, and I just knocked it out. I was like, "What's so difficult about this? This is what you have to do, and you have to be able to demonstrate and be a little and have a little personality in front of the camera." And because I loved watching all the analysts of not only baseball but football and, and basketball and see who's good, who's not, what do they do. And Bart Swain asked me, he goes, hey, after the season, if by any chance we're not in the postseason, would you be interested in, is it okay if I give your name out so they can use you for postseason, if it's ESPN or or whomever was interested? At the time, it was Baseball Tonight was the main thing. When it comes to baseball, there was no MLB network. There was uh, nothing really else. Uh, No Fox uh, baseball. So I was like, sure, that'd be great. And then I get traded for his group of Cabrera from Seattle, uh, from Cleveland to Seattle. Mm-hmm. And I thought out of sight, out of mind. And out of the blue, Bart Swain called me. He goes, you still interested? And I said, absolutely. 
So then I get a call from Jay Levy from ESPN, and, and, and he tells me, he goes, hey, listen, you were highly recommended. Would you mind coming in uh, to do a little postseason? Uh, it'll be you, Vernon Wells, and a couple other guys. And I said, no problem. And they said, how much will it be uh, for you? And I said, listen, just uh, put me up at a hotel, uh, get me my plane ride, and I'll be happy to do it. Wow. I said, I just want an opportunity because you never know. I'm still not retired. Um, and I went. I loved it from day one. I thought it was really cool to be around what I thought were uh, were so many knowledgeable people. At the time, Jeff Brantley was there. Um, you, you had Tim Kirchin was, was there. You know, Carl Rabbits, which we always uh, saw on the day. Sure. He was the face of baseball when it came to baseball tonight. And uh, John Cruck. And, and uh, Crucky came up to me and goes, you could do this for a long time. You know that, right? Mm. And it just made me think. And those those three days that I was there, I fell in love with 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 the TV aspect of and and working and being able to be productive and something else besides just hitting a baseball. And I went to spring training with the with the White Sox. Didn't make the team. And when I did not make the team, I had I ended up having a little scope on my knee. And ESPN called me and said. Uh, are you going to hang them up if you are? We're interested in uh, having you work with uh, for us. And I said, let's do it. I didn't want to sit around. I didn't want to be out of sight, out of mind. And I have a passion for this. Uh, I owe a lot to this game. Uh, this game is the reason why uh, my parents met. As my father went to play in Puerto Rico and met my mom there. Uh, both uh, were exiled from Cuba at the time. Uh, this is the reason uh, why I, I'm able to feed my kids. This is, uh, baseball is, is everything to, to my family. And, and I understand that and I respect the game so much. And having the ability of and, and being blessed, better said, to be around greatness, including my father, which is a Hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. And I was around greatness uh, yesterday with Hank Aaron. And, 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 you know, all those stories in the TV booth, all those stories that you can hear, my, my godfather's Orlando Cepeda. I get them from Jeez. every corner. I yeah. talk to those. I talk to. I talk to the, the past. I talk to the present players. I, I, the beauty about this game is no one knows everything, and you see something new every day, something you have never seen before, and at all levels. It's not just at the major league level, the little league level, at the at the college level, and I love being involved in all of it because the game is managed differently now at different levels, but it's still the same pure game that we've all fallen in love with. It's interesting you mentioned the game being managed differently. Uh, two of our ex-colleagues are managing the Yankees and the Red Sox now. That's a thing. That just happened. So that's incredible. Uh, yeah, we're sitting in the green room, whatever, eating candy bars at 1 a.m. And now, okay, cool. They're going to man- maybe manage against each other for the LCS, which is bonkers. Uh, what is it about that place? And, and baseball tonight, you know, has um, it's diminished in frequency. It's, it's not what it once was. Through nobody's fault, really. It's just changing landscape of baseball. You mentioned MLB Network. Things have happened. But was it? what is it about that place, aside from Booney and Cora obviously being super smart and personable and all that, that lends itself to that kind of transition? Because it's a pretty cool thing to think, okay, well, there are these people saying smart things on TV, and now they get to manage, you know, maybe for the World Series. And you yourself have managerial experience and so forth, coaching, who knows what the future holds. But it's a pretty cool thing when that happened. I was like, all right, like, I, I could see that. And and I guess there's a little bit of an incubator there. If you play a successful major league career, then you further hone your skills, really analyzing from the outside. And then I guess it lends itself to maybe going back to the major league clubhouse. I think it's important. Um, and it's a different perspective that you get 
watching the game and, and respecting the game. And, and again, Booney's a third generation major leaguer. Yeah. Um, Alex is his brother plays the major leagues before um, he had even signed professionally mm-hmm. um, while he was in the Puerto Rico. Then he went to college at, at University of Miami. Both went to big time uh, collegiate programs. One went to USC. The other one went to my uh, University of Miami. Yeah. Uh, it's and and not only that. Um, again. When you're around the game and you're around the players, you learn that aspect of it. You see the game as a player. Mm. But when you go into Bristol and you're now picking each other's brains, yeah. and you're picking if it's Rick Sutcliffe's brain, or you're picking um, Buck Showalter, which I think was a huge influence on me because I used to uh, do a lot of baseball tonight shows with him yeah. uh, for a few years. And, and then you also have the luxury at ESPN to pick uh, other successful coaches, other uh, successful coaches that have nothing to do with baseball. It could be college basketball. Yeah. It could be, it, it could be, you know, uh, NFL, you name it. It could be collegiate football. And all the other sports are all there. They're in the green room. They're walking through the hallways. They're in the makeup rooms. Mm-hmm. You're picking up tendencies. You're picking up communication skills that each one has, and you have the ability to have them in a, in a place that you can gain their trust, and then they can help you also harness that ability of, of then you going in and being a leader of them. And I think this is what's helped Aaron. This is what's helped Alex. This is what's helped so many others that have gone through those hallways and those rooms in Bristol and, and, and now you're seeing it at a higher level. I mean, it's national television. Anything you say, anything, anytime when you say it live, it's going to be on the air forever. It's going to be found somewhere. It's going to be on YouTube. So you have to be careful, but at the same time, you have to be very original and you have to be credible. And I think Aaron and, and Alex, when you talk to them and when you talk to any of us that, that, that work in this, in this environment, including yourself, you see the genuineness of them, and and those those players will run through a wall for them. And and I, I I talked to Brett Gardner about it. Brett Gardner came up to me and goes, "Hey man, I did not realize this was in spring training. I did not realize Aaron was this good. And we're not we haven't even started the season. And he was just saying since the first meeting, the way he came about, it's just who he is. Yeah, it's who Aaron is. And Alex the same way. And and again, I, I put a uniform on you." And you have great communication skills. Um, yeah, you didn't play. You didn't play at the major league level, but you understand the game and you know the game. And that's all those guys want. They want leadership and they want to be treated like that. I uh, to your point, by the way, one of the first times I, there was a couple of hotels. There's the Homewood Suites there, and there's the DoubleTree. And one of the first times I stayed at the DoubleTree, I was I went downstairs nine or ten in the morning. I was bleary eyed. I think I'd done maybe a two a.m. show the night before, whatever it was. I think it was one of the first times I'd ever stayed there. And I go down, I'm going to get some breakfast. And I'm like, you know, not showered. I'm wearing shorts. I'd look like hell, whatever. And I go mosey in. And the first person that I see in the restaurant is Mike Ditka. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is what this life is going to be like. That it's going to be, you know, late nights and and this, that, or the other. But also Mike Ditka's there when you get. So it was like, it it was that kind of experience. And it was a... It's just a surreal kind of thing to to be, as you mentioned, picking the brain of other coaches. It's just like, oh yeah, Ditka's there, Bobby Knight is there. Like it just, 
It's a it's a whole Ooh, different Bobby universe. Bobby Knight, you name it. Unbelievable. Right. Really interesting. Um, I want to ask you about your ties to Puerto Rico because they go they run so deep. Obviously, you know, uh, from your dad's origins to high school through your post career, starting the winter training program, uh, managing in winter league, uh, just all kinds of stuff. How much does it mean to you to have baseball continue to be vibrant and maybe even thrive even more? As great as the legacy of the island is, you seem so committed to even growing it even more. I mentioned Rosario the other day, just earlier. You, I remember the first time you mentioned him on air. I was doing a show with him, and you are like, my man Eddie, he's hitting. And you could just see the pride that you have for PR and for guys who come out of there. So how important is it for you to see – baseball thrive there and, and what are you trying to do to try to make that happen that's a great question and um i think the same pride that i have watching every puerto rican play hit pitch at the major league level yeah i believe you have the same pride every time you see a canadian step up to the plate yeah i guess so and uh and in the major leagues i mean you mentioned larry walker earlier on in this um in, in this interview so it, it just it, it, it goes a long way again um, both my parents are Cuban. Um, they met in Puerto Rico. Yeah. They married in Puerto Rico. I was raised in Puerto Rico. I would have been born there, but I was an in-season child, and so was my brother. So during the season, we were in Cincinnati. I was born in Cincinnati. I'm proud of it. Um, but I consider myself a Puerto Rican. Mm. And um, my kids were born there. My wife's from there. Um, I still have a I still have a home there. Uh, it's uh, to me. I, again, just like baseball, um, I owe everything to that island, and um, I owe everything to the people there. And as soon as I, I retired and, and, and I hung them up, I, I needed to do something uh, to help out the development of Puerto Rican players once they signed. Because the problem there is in Puerto Rico, and it started when the draft came to Puerto Rico in, in, um, in, in the early 1990s. It came to Puerto Rico, and, and once it did, people did not know what to do. The whole entire infrastructure of having scouts develop their players before they signed, practice them, take them, uh, spend months with them, and then saying, okay, you're ready to go and sign, and they give them a bonus for that as a free agent signee, that was all long gone. So now these young players were left um, with no high school team, because not a lot of high school, uh, you don't play high school baseball over there. It's American Legion, it's Connie Mack, it's that it's, it, you have to, you're responsible for yourself. You're not responsible. Um, and no one else is responsible for you. There was nobody picking you up, nobody teaching you the way. And then you get drafted and then you go on your lonesome self to a spring training site, either in Arizona or Florida. And then when you come back, when you come back to Puerto Rico, you have nowhere to practice because that American Legion team, they're out, they're doing something else. There's no high school team. You don't know how to work out. You don't know how to practice on the off, during the offseason, and your talent level stays the same. Yeah. yeah, yeah. there's winter baseball, but the problem is when you're in A-ball, you, you're usually not playing. You usually don't belong to a team. You're not on the active roster. They don't want you around, and, and there's nothing to do. Hmm. What do you do? Where do you work out? And I felt there was a void, and um, – I went back to Puerto Rico and I developed this program called the Winter Training Program, WTP. And and uh, I asked my wife, she's a lawyer, I said, can you help me out write this? 
She goes, you write it. I'll iron it out for you. Hmm. And then I had to, uh, that's exactly what we did. And then we both got on a plane and we went to New York and we knocked on the door of the Players Association where Gene Orza was there. And I explained the program to Gene Orza because that year there was no winter ball in Puerto Rico. So what were the players going to do that year without any winter ball at all? And the young players with nobody else to work out with. Hey, you got to buy balls. You got to do the bats, the whole thing. And then from there, we went to Jimmy Lee Solomon at, at, at the time was in charge of international side of, of Major League Baseball. And I showed him our proposal. And I said, this is what I want to do to help out the island of Puerto Rico because there was a lot of damage done to it with the infrastructure and how to develop players once they signed. And we ended up using the Adam B. Thorne Stadium where, it was, where this year the Cleveland Indians and the Minnesota Twins played a series. And we had a total of 125 players show up for six weeks. And we worked them out. And I had coaching staff. I had the whole thing. Mm. And we had sponsors. Major League Baseball was a big sponsor. The Player Association was a big sponsor. Marucci's Bat Company at the time, which is now Marucci Sports, was a big uh, sponsor. Each organization, Major League organization, gave us $3,000 and three boxes of minor league baseballs mm. for us to practice. And I wanted minor league baseballs. I did not want big league baseballs. Everything was done with a purpose. Yeah. And the reason why I wanted minor league baseballs because each case in a minor league baseball case comes 10 dozen baseballs. In a big league case, there's six dozen baseballs. I'd rather have minor, I'd rather, I needed quantity. I did not need a stamp that said major league baseball. I needed uh, the Marucci Bat Company set. I mean, so many bats, 400 bats, different models for players to use. We had coaches. We gave jobs to coaches. We worked our butts off. It was great. And then we, Pressured the island, of, pressured the Puerto Rican baseball league to come back the next season, and they did. And we've now learned, and those young players, they learned how to train on their own. They learned, they learned how to train in the off season. Um, we had uh, uh, Maldonado, which is the catcher for the Anaheim, oh, for the LA Angels. Yep, he was he was part of the winter training program. Hmm. Uh, he was there as an A baller. When he belonged to the Brewers, yeah. we had a lot of Mets players. We had a lot of Cubs players. Yair Molina came and worked out. Albert Pujols came and worked wow. out. Uh, you, uh, we had Carlos Delgado at the time. Javier Vasquez at the time. They worked out. Luis Matos. You name it, they were there. J.C. Romero, the big leaguers were coming to work out alongside the minor leaguers, eight ballers. And that's what we needed. We needed to show the owners of the winter ball team that these players want to play. They need somewhere to work out. And um, it's unfortunate that I could not continue the winter training program, but it was unfortunate because the reason we couldn't is because now all those parts were taken the next year because there was winter baseball again. And, um, and that, was a bit, that was the purpose of this whole thing. Give these players a place to go play and they'll show up. And they showed up big time. That's awesome. I want to ask you where we're at this is we're getting on toward a year after Hurricane Maria first first touchdown. Where are we at on the island? Just devastation, obviously. What can people do? I mean, uh, you know, it's the, the simplest thing seems to be, oh, write a check to somebody, and, and that'll be the end of that. Uh, what is most needed there at this point? Where what do we maybe don't know? Uh, you know, just sitting in comfort in the suburbs of wherever American North American city that we are. Uh, not realizing what the state of the island is. How much better is it and how much work is left? 
Well, you can still tell that it was devastated. Um, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to lie to you and say it were 100%. Yeah. Uh, the tourist areas, if you go to Puerto Rico, um, and that's the thing. We look at what's the most important thing that Puerto Rico needs. It's tourism. Yeah. And so don't think because Maria hit that, uh, you know what, Puerto Rico was hit hard, so we shouldn't go there. On the contrary, uh, Puerto Rico needs um, people to go, people to see what happened, people to see the history uh, uh, of, of Puerto Rico. Um, uh, the old San Juan is beautiful. Uh, you need to go into the inside of the island, also to the center of the island to see still a little bit of devastation. Mm-hmm. But most importantly, what Puerto Rico needs is is people to continue to talk about it um, more than anything. Uh, keep it keep it in the forefront, and I think that's the most important thing. And, and, and we're we're all guilty of this. We we see we saw when Irma hit Florida. We saw when Harvey hit. Uh, Houston. There's people that are still affected by that too. But being in an island all by yourself out there, and it's an island uh, 100 by 30, we cannot forget how important it is. As a matter of fact, um, my while I'm working and I'll be going to the College World Series uh, for the next two weeks, my wife and kids they're going to go down to Puerto Rico hmm. uh, for a week uh, because we feel it's important. We feel it's important that they understand. Yeah, it was hit hard but we still have to come back and at least help out the economy one way or another. Um, another thing that's, uh, you know, it's, it's not about the money now. It's, you know, everybody's like, Oh yeah, send money to this, send money to that. You know, what is needed? Mattresses were needed big time at the center of the island huh. uh, where all the where power went out, where the houses were flooded. And then all of a sudden the water recedes, the water recedes and, and, and there's no power. And there's total darkness. And from that, here you get all the mold. And you get all yeah. the stuff that, you know, makes people sick. And so mattresses, uh, simple things hmm. and uh, that, that are needed for the daily, uh, just, to, just to help out. But um, right now, I think it's just important to, to create the awareness and understand that it's hurricane season again. June 1st, hurricane season started again. Yeah. It picks up big time uh, between mid-August and September, it's when the Caribbean is at a, a, at a high of being threatened, just like it is in the, in the panhandle of Florida, Mississippi, Alabama, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas. All those states, they're vulnerable right now. And it's, it's, it's a tough time, to, and, and, and it creates unbelievable awareness uh, when it comes to that. But we just can't forget, from the fires in California to the tornadoes in the, in the, in, in the valleys, and we... we, we all those things we have to be aware and we just again it's human nature tells us okay move on after a little bit because news happens fast yeah but um it's one thing that to, to create that awareness eduardo it's always a pleasure to chat with you this is, was a great excuse to catch up i'm glad to hear things are going well uh we'll watch you at the college world series that should be really really exciting i i i, uh, I know that you look forward to that every single year as well and uh we will check you out on ESPN. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. John, I appreciate you having me on on your show. Thanks a lot.